reading from 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and said, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of these by tomorrow's end. Then Elijah was afraid and he rose and he ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. And he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came to a broom tree and sat down. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now. O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel came and touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he turned and saw at his head a cake that was baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. An angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. The journey is too great for you. And so he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of the Lord. When he arrived, he found a cave and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, but the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and torn down your altars and killed your prophets and I, even I alone, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said, come out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and there was a great and strong wind that tore at the mountain and the rocks crumbled as the Lord came, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there came an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after an earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And the Lord said to Elijah, as he heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloth and went out to the mouth of the cave entrance. And a voice came, what are you doing here Elijah. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, and the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets, and I, even I alone, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return your way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do we do when we've had enough? What do we do when we've just had enough? Too much. In 2007, I quit parish ministry. I was wearied by personal disappointments. I was wearied by church politics. So I resigned my parish in 2007 and found the first escape hatch, 
a chaplaincy at a boarding school. Well, though this was an Anglican school and needed a chaplain, this school had got so secularized that though this was a full-time paid position, my responsibilities consisted of a 15-minute chapel four days a week. I should have been over the moon, full-time, about an hour's worth of work. I was miserable, desperately miserable. I was under my own broom tree, and I was saying, I've had enough. What do we do when we've had enough? Well, we look at this story from 1 Kings 19, the story of Elijah. You see, Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is done. He's had enough. In verse 2, we see the threat, the presenting obstacle for Elijah. Verse 2, Jezebel, the queen, sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of these prophets of Baal that you killed by tomorrow. Well, Elijah's response, verse 3, he runs for his life. And I mean he really runs for his life. He runs from Jezreel, which is in the north of Israel, to Beersheba, which is in the far south. So that is 125, 135 miles. And and you got to be impressed because I had to convert that from kilometers because that's what my phone still thinks in. 125 miles. I mean, Elijah's response to Jezebel's threat is he runs from Plano to Waco. That's his response. And when he gets there, he finds a broom tree and he sits down and asks that he might die. With these words, he says, it is enough. It's enough. It's a wonderful, very full Hebrew word, the word rav. Enough. Rav. It's, it's, it's beyond me. Now, rav can mean full up in, in good ways. You can be overflowing with goodness. But you can also be overwhelmed with adversity. And he says, it's enough. I cannot handle it. It's too much. And what I find amazing here is after everything Elijah has faced, for those of you who know the Elijah story a little bit, and we'll look at that in a moment, but after everything Elijah has faced, why now? Why now is it too much? This threat of this pagan queen, and that's going to ruin his ministry? What I find in my own life, and I don't know about yours, is when we get to these difficult places, when we get to these rav moments, these it's enough, it's too much moments, it often doesn't come because of some kind of logical sequence. You know, sometimes it's sort of a downward spiral, but sometimes it's more like, you know, just bewilderment coming out of left field. Things have been going well, it's been a good season, and all of a sudden, boom. And we're in a desperate place. I I can't do this. This this doesn't add up. Some of you have had enough. Some of you are right now sitting under your broom trees saying, Lord, I can't do this. Some of you maybe have just come out of a season like that. And all of us are worried that the next season in front of us might bring us to a broom tree. What do we do 
when we've had enough. Maybe it's in your work. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your parenting. Maybe it's in disappointments or illness or loss. I was at DFW the other day, and as I was getting my truck, I said to the guy, I said, how's your day? How you doing? And his response immediately back was, it'll be a better day when I hear from my family in Puerto Rico. He says, I haven't heard from them since yesterday. And I said, could I pray with you? And man, like a vice grip, he grabbed my arm and said, please pray. Desperate. Too much. Lord, I don't know how to do this. I'm under a broom tree and I've had enough. What do we do when we've had enough? Well, we look at Elijah's story and here's what we see. There's three things that we see in this Elijah story that help us when we're under our broom trees. We see perspective. It's such an important word, perspective. But not only perspective, but we see a personal encounter. Elijah meets the Lord, has a personal encounter with the Lord. And finally, not just perspective, not just a personal encounter with the Lord, but the final piece that's needed is purpose. The Lord to speak his purpose. Well, first of all, perspective. Elijah needs to have perspective on where this is coming from. I love that word perspective. I mean, it's such a full word. I I pray that for myself, that I'd have the right perspective on things. I pray that for my children, that they'd have the right perspective on things. Perspective is about how we see things. Are Are we seeing what's really going on behind these things? Are we simply receiving everything coming at us? Are we able to see what's really going on? Perspective. I remember I I learned about perspective in a a kind of a funny way. Um, When I was in high school, I was a freshman and I played basketball. Don't laugh. And we were actually a pretty good team. Like we we did pretty well, high school ball. I was a freshman and uh, we, we played well in the whole city. There's only one team in all of Victoria British Columbia, Canada, where I grew up, there was one team we just could not beat. And it's not just we couldn't beat them. They killed us every time. And they won, you know, the city championships and the equivalent of the state championships year after year. And I never knew why. I'm like, why are they so good? There's something I can't see. How can they be so good? Until a number of years later, I realized that I was playing against Steve Nash. No joke. No joke. Steve Nash. Steve Nash. Look it up. He grew up in Victoria. He went to St. Michael's. St. Michael's creamed us every year. He was a senior. I was a freshman. Same team. I checked the stats. I played against Steve Nash. I mean, it's good for dinner parties. You can just drop that in there, you know. No, there was this time I was playing basketball with Steve Nash. It's true. But see, I didn't see till later. I'm like, now that makes sense. Now I knew why we got creamed. We were playing against one of the greatest NBA players of the last, you know, 10, 12 years. No wonder. I mean, the perspective changes everything. For Elijah, he needs the perspective to understand what's going on here. He's under a broom tree. There's real threat here. There's real threat. But he's got to understand what's really going on here. And here's what he needs to see. It's all in verse 1. 
What's really going on? What's the perspective Elijah needs? Well, look at verse one. Verse one says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, I'll, I'll talk at some other sermon sometime about you know, him killing all the prophets of Baal with the sword. That's another whole sermon. But for now, just say, just understand that he did what the Lord had called him to do in righteousness. So here's the point of verse one. Here's the perspective, Elijah. You're not a victim here. You're not a victim. You're not a passive victim. Elijah, you caused this. The the circumstances, you got the queen upset with you. Well, guess what? You did it. But but it's not like he did it in a bad way. He did it in a good way. He was doing what God called him to do. See, the perspective that Elijah needs to recognize is the reason that the conflict comes at him is because he's been doing precisely what the Lord has called him to do. You see, Elijah is living into a kingdom. He's announcing a kingdom, the kingdom of the true God. And in the face of that true God, all other earthly kingdoms have to either kneel or be overturned. No wonder these kingdoms are in conflict. Elijah, you're faithfully living into your ministry. That's where the conflict came from. This is the result of faithfulness, Elijah. I mean, the perspective changes everything. I mean, look at what he does when when it says in verse 1 that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. This is what he's saying. Just just use a quick 30-second tour through chapter 17, 18. Chapter 17 begins, Elijah predicts a drought, and it happens. Then he gets fed by ravens, whatever that's all about, and then he goes to Zarephath and finds this widow who's got a son, and they're dying because they don't have enough food. Elijah prays, and the oil and the flour do not run out. They're saved, they live, but then the son dies. Elijah raises the son from the dead, and then in chapter 18, There's a big contest between the prophets of Baal and the prophets, and the only prophet, Elijah, of Yahweh. And and Elijah says, why don't we have a little contest here? Let's see who the real king, the real God of the universe is. You build an altar, and you cut up your sacrifice on your altar, and I'll build an altar, and I'll cut up my sacrifice here. And then you call on your God and get him to rain fire down on that sacrifice, and I'll do the same with mine, and we'll figure out which God is for real? Well, the prophets of Baal, they are dancing around, trying to get you know, Baal's attention. They're cutting themselves and doing rituals, and nothing happens. Elijah's over here building his altar, mocking them. So did he fall asleep? Did he go somewhere? Is he relieving himself? Mocking them. And then Elijah says, watch this, Israel. He dumps water on top of his altar three times. What's the point? Water makes it inflammable, Right? And then he says, O God of Israel, show us that you are the true God. Fire comes from heaven, devours the sacrifice, and he turns on the prophets of Baal and says to Israel, who's the true God? And then puts those prophets to death. And at the very end of the passage, he predicts that the rain will come after the drought and rain comes. Chapter 17 and 18, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And again, I want to say, Elijah, after all that, the pagan queen gets upset with you and you freak out? Have you paid attention to what God has been doing? But it's true. This happens in our lives. We can see the power of God working and five minutes later, amnesia sets in and we forget. You see, what Elijah needs to realize, and this is the perspective, 
is that he has actually not been the victim here. He's the aggressor. He's the one agitating because his message of the kingdom is bringing about turmoil. And so it is for us as we proclaim the kingdom of God, as we proclaim that Jesus is king over the universe, we will find again and again a world that at times will respond harshly because the kingdom is being turned upside down. Jesus says, he's very upfront with this to his disciples in Matthew chapter five. No secrets here, no sugarcoating it. What does he say in Matthew five? We just read it a moment ago. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Elijah. We today continue in that tradition of calling out the truth of the kingdom in a world in love. God loves this world and he wants to redeem it and yet we find again and again false kingdoms around us that are put into turmoil over this. Elijah, the perspective you need sitting on your broom tree is you kind of caused this because you were faithful. You caused this because you were actually faithful in your ministry. But see, that's not enough. It's not enough just to have that perspective. I mean, that's kind of depressing. Wow. Wow, I was faithful. Thanks so much. Needs more than perspective. He needs a personal encounter with God. And that's what comes next. See, Elijah needs a personal encounter with the Lord because somewhere along the way, Elijah stopped listening to the Lord. It's it's really interesting. Uh, He's under this broom tree now and he's run, you know, 125, 135 miles, you know, Plano to Waco in fear under this broom tree. But every other place in Elijah's ministry, Elijah only ever moves after the word of the Lord comes. The word of the Lord comes and Elijah moves. So what we see here, I mean, just to give you an example, uh, chapter 17, verse 2. Chapter 17, verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward. So verse 5, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 8. The word of the Lord came to him and said, arise and go to Zarephath. Verse 10, so he arose and went to Zarephath. Chapter 18, you see where this is going. After many days, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab. Verse 2, so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. I mean, every time Elijah moves in this story, it's because the word of the Lord directed him to move. Go here and he goes. But what's amazing with this 135 mile journey in fear is that there's no reference to the word of the Lord telling him to do this. The word of the Lord has not told him to go to Beersheba. A pagan queen and her threats have put fear in him. Fear has driven him to Beersheba and this broom tree, not the word of the Lord. But here's the gospel. Even if we weren't listening, God will come and find us under our broom trees. God comes. He sends his angel twice to wake him up. And and he's specifically feeding him because he says, okay, I got to feed you now. Verse five, arise and eat. Verse seven, arise and eat. 
And then the angel does a little word play. Remember that word, enough? Oh, it's enough, rav. Well, the angel says in verse 7, you, you got to get up and eat because the journey I'm about to send you on is rav. It's too much for you. See, I'm about to take you on a further journey. You've gone 135 miles from Plano to Waco, from, from Jezreel to Beersheba, and now you're going to go 250, 260 miles further to Horeb, the Mount of God, Mount Sinai. So if he's gone 125, 135, that's Plano to Waco, now he's got to go in the strength of that food that God provides, another 250, 260, 270. So it's kind of Waco to Corpus Christi. It's too much for you, but I'm calling you to myself. You see, God finds him under the broom tree and says, come, come to me. You need a personal encounter with the Lord. You need to see me. Come to my mountain. And he goes, and when he gets there, verse 9, he again hears from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to him. Behold, verse 9. And then verse 11 and 12, we get this theophany. A theophany is when we actually see God, encounter God. This, this amazing moment where he stands there and the Lord passes by and there's this wind and this you know, breaking of the rocks because of the wind, but the Lord's not in the wind. And then there's an earthquake, but he's not in the earthquake. And then there's a fire and he's not in the fire. And then there's a still small voice or a low lying whisper. And again, you've probably heard sermons on this and I may preach sermons down the road on what does that all mean that he's not in the earthquake and he's not in the wind and he's not in the fire. Here's really what it means for today's purposes is those, he's not in those elements because he's not an elemental spirit. This is the God of the universe. The elements are simply moving around as a sign that God just showed up. He's not in those elements. He's beyond and king over those elements. He's the king of creation and creation erupts in his presence. Wind and fire and earthquake. Elijah is beholding the true God. He's seeing God. He's having a personal encounter with God. And this is exactly what he needs. Come to me, Yahweh is saying. Come and be with me. Be my people. Now you may say, oh, isn't that nice for Elijah? I mean, must be nice, Elijah. You're under your broom tree. And so God sends a couple angels, you know, feeds you for this big journey, takes you up a mountain, and then shows off with this firework display of wind and earthquake and fire. I wish I was Elijah. Well, you know the amazing thing? You and I have more, more than what Elijah had. We do. As crazy as that sounds. And you're thinking... I've never had earthquake and wind and fire with that kind of encounter of the living God, but you actually have. You just haven't seen those things, but the reality of those things has been precisely in your life if you're a believer. Here's what I mean. See, Elijah had to go up a mountain, go to a place and meet God on that mountain. But because of what Jesus has done, remember when Jesus was hanging there on Good Friday, bearing your sin and my sin? What happened when he died? He died and there was an earthquake. On the third day, after he'd overcome our sin, now he overcomes our death with the empty tomb. And what happens at the empty tomb? There is a earthquake. 
Wow, the presence of God. There's an earthquake. And then a few days later, well, a few weeks later, on the day of Pentecost, when God pours out the Holy Spirit on us, how does that Holy Spirit moment come to us? Wind and fire. So all of a sudden, Christian, do you hear this? That you have had the blood of Jesus spilled for your sins, you've had death overcome on Easter, and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, earthquake, fire, and wind has been poured into your life. And where Elijah had to go up a mountain to meet God, now because of what Jesus won for you, you have God's Holy Spirit dwelling right within you now. Earthquake, fire, and wind all packed right into you, O Christian. Do you hear that? Do you hear that we, therefore, as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, speaking of this, I mean, he's initially speaking of Moses going up that same mountain, but it applies just as much to this experience of Elijah on the mountain. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, because of what Jesus has done, and we all now with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. And we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. Jesus has made it possible that we can have a personal encounter with God every moment. Because if you have Jesus, you have his spirit living in you. What's incredible, though, is that not only does Elijah in this moment get this amazing perspective. Hey, guess what? This is kind of your fault for being faithful, Elijah. There's the perspective. He also gets the personal encounter with the Lord, right? The Lord is present, but it's still not enough for Elijah. There's something else needed. And here's why we know it's not enough, because it doesn't really change him yet in the story. He's had this perspective. He's had this personal encounter with the Lord, but he's still basically the same. Here's why. Look what happens. In verse 9 and verse 13, Yahweh poses the exact same question to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And what's his response? Verse 10, he says, well, I've, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, and, and all of Israel. You know, they're, they're forsaking your covenant and tearing down your altars, and they're you know, killing your prophets. I alone am left, and they're seeking out to take my life. And then this theophany, wind, earthquake, fire, still small voice. God shows up. Wow, he's in the presence of the almighty God. And then God asks the same question. And with bated breath, we hear God again say, now, here I am, Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah is totally unchanged. Well, I've been very jealous for the Lord, and I, I have been, I, you know, they're, the Israel, they're throwing down your altars, and they're rejecting your covenant, and they're killing the prophets, and I alone am being faithful. Wah, wah, wah. And I don't say that lightly, but I mean, God just showed up in his presence, and he's unchanged by it. Same answer. And so God gives the final ingredient that Elijah needs. See, it's not just perspective. It's not just a personal encounter with God. But God speaks purpose over Elijah's life under that broom tree. Verse 15. Okay, Elijah. Go. Go back. Return 
from where you came. Yeah, that whole 400 mile journey, go back. Go back to the ministry that I called you to because it's still the same ministry I called you to. Go back to the purpose I gave you because it is unchanged. These circumstances have come at you, but my call on your life remains unchanged. Go back, go your way. In Elijah's case, he's got to go anoint two kings and find a successor. So go do it. And do you know what's amazing? He goes. Verse 19, that's enough. Restating his purpose is enough to get Elijah moving. Elijah gets up, verse 19 says, and he went. And Elijah goes on to a faithful end to his ministry. I mean, this purpose, friends, is what we need when we're sitting in our broom trees. We need to be reminded that God's call has not changed. And sometimes precisely the thing we need in that moment more than anything else is not just perspective, not just God's presence and his, uh, that personal encounter, but we need God to say, I'm not done with you. Whatever it is that you have been struggling with, whatever put you under your broom tree, whatever overwhelming struggle where you're saying to God, Rav, it's too much, it's enough, God will come to you because he's in you by the Spirit. But then he'll say to you, it's still my same call. You know, every week in the communion liturgy, we say at the end, um, this call into, into service, this call to go like Elijah, to go back into ministry, it's to send us out to do the work you've given us to do, to love and serve you as witnesses of Christ our Lord. Go back. Every week we come in, and we might be under our broom tree and every week God sends us out again. Go, here's your purpose again, go live. And you know, what's amazing is Jesus himself had his own broom tree moment. It was different, it was Jesus, but his broom tree was called Gethsemane. Jesus, the night of his arrest, goes into a garden with his closest friends and he calls out to his father and says, Father, Rav, it's too much. I, I can't, if you could take this cup away from me, but, purpose, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus, knowing the purpose of the Father, gets out of that broom tree and climbs up that mountain on Calvary to save you and me. What do we do when we've had enough? We need perspective. We need a personal encounter with the Lord. But we need to hear our purpose restated. In 2007, I quit parish ministry, wearied by personal disappointments in church politics, and I resigned and found the nearest escape hatch, which was this chaplaincy at a boarding school. 15 minutes of chapel, four days a week. And one night I sat at the dinner table with my family. Some of you have heard the story. And I had my head in my hands. We were eating Chinese food because that's what Donisons do when we're depressed. <laughs> and the kids were very little. This is 10 years ago. And I had my head in my hands. And I was saying to Monica, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what, I'm, what am I supposed to do. What am I supposed to do? And our kids are overhearing this conversation. And Sophie Jane was three, sitting in her little high chair. And she says, Daddy, 
you are a priest. I said, what? And again, Sophie Jane, three years old in her high chair with noodles on her head. <laughs> says, daddy, you are a priest. I started to cry. And Monica started to cry because we knew it was the Lord. I called the bishop. I said, send me back to parish ministry. What are you doing here, Elijah? Go. Do the work I've called you to do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.